Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. There was a time when there were things that united us. Through most of the 20th century, for example, there were movies and TV shows, books and sports, and even the three choices for getting our evening news. We were, for a long time, part of a commonweal, a kind of national town square that provided our water cooler conversation around the things that we had in common. Over the past 40 or so years, all that has changed. Technology and the proverbial long tail have atomized us into individual interest. The explosion of thousands of sources of news, entertainment, and information satisfied us, satiated us, really, but took away our common bonds. As a new generation took power, traditional religion gave way to secularism, and simultaneously, political rhetoric ratcheted up. The years of Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich, repeal of the Fairness Doctrine, the rise and inherent meanness of talk radio, all gave birth to a new kind of tribalism. Essentially, politics became our religion. While we might be divided in our views, it was ironic that the only thing we had in common was talking about politics. Politics was our primary sense of community, even as we hated those on the other side. Creative destruction and continued social, economic, and technological change fed the division at every level, and social media put it on afterburners. Today, we inherit the whirlwind, and it very well might mean that the Madisonian ideal of America has passed its sell-by date. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, David French. David French is a senior editor of The Dispatch. He's a columnist at Time, a former senior writer at National Review, an Iraq War veteran, and he's the author of the just-published Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. David French, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, it's great to have you here. Nothing symbolizes the division we've gotten to today more than the response to COVID. Something like that really has has brought out the worst of us in so many respects. Yeah, you know, it's really been remarkable. I remember being asked, because when I started writing this book, I I was talking to two folks who also look at American polarization and vision, and they say, could we come, is it getting so bad that we'd have trouble coming together in, in responding to a shared crisis? And I said, well, we haven't had one, uh, to the same extent of 9-11, but I think it's getting so bad that we would have real trouble coming together. And so here you have a virus that comes into our shores um, that afflicts the entire country, and we almost immediately started having culture wars over it. I mean, almost immediately. I, I think perhaps few things sort of tell us what's happening more with group polarization than, for example, the, the very notion of wearing how wearing a mask in the middle of a pandemic caused by a respiratory infection uh, created masking culture wars with very sharp partisan divides. And, uh, and already you see partisan divides over other things like vaccines, partisan divides over things like mail-in balloting, um, things that prior to this were not really partisan issues at all. And so, yeah, we, we have now engineered the ability to take almost anything and make a culture war out of it. And yet the inherent irony in it is that that politics and partisanship, even to the extent that we fight and hate each other, is the only common thread that runs through so much of this. <laughs> right. Well, you know, one of the, the themes in my book is the note at the way in which all what's fascinating is that we are splitting on 
so many different in so many different ways. In other words, um, America is becoming more secular, but it is not becoming more secular everywhere at the same rate. So many parts of the country are more far more religious than and, than others. Or we're splitting in the, the way we watch television or consume popular culture. Um, we are splitting in geography. We are there are so many ways in which we're splitting. And then the weird thing about it all is that virtually all of those different kinds of splits can lay across the red-blue political map. And so that red Americans tend to watch very similar kinds of TV, and blue Americans watch very similar kinds of TV, and they don't watch the same things. Or red Americans uh, watch a certain sport, and blue Americans watch other sports. For example, NBA basketball is far more popular in blue America. College football is far more popular in red America. And the sport that really stretches across all political lines, NFL football, is increasingly contentious all by itself. And so we have all of these divisions, all of these things that separate us, and and essentially they're all beginning to track along these red-blue lines. And that's one of the things that is um, so, I think, ultimately could be long-term destabilizing. One of the things that seems stabilizing for a while— was the fact that local politics had not yet been infected by it. Somebody once said, and I don't remember who it was, you might remember, that there isn't a Democrat or a Republican way to pave the streets. And yet today, that red-blue divide has filtered down even to the most local politics. Well, right, it really has. And it's filtered down to local politics because it's seen as a predictor of presidential politics, for, uh, for example. So uh, you know, li- rarely before have I read more diagnosis, more analysis here in Tennessee of suburban Philadelphia local elections and what it might mean for, say, 2020, November 2020. Uh, you know, these are things that you would never hear about, you'd never think about. I mean, I read story after story, for example, about um, Democratic politics around the, Tulsa, the race for, say, Tulsa mayor. Um, and what that says, and part of it is a reflection of how local politics has become less powerful and national politics has become more powerful. And so for rational reasons, people look to local politics to sort of tell us as a predictor of how those lo- local politics will play in the national elections that really matter to people. And, and that's a very dangerous thing when you have an in- increasingly diverse country where people are increasingly different then and and a but at the same time you have increasing centralization for the central government that creates real tension and as you point out there really is no countervailing force there's lots of things and we could right. talk for hours about all the things that are pushing us apart but there is really nothing that you can identify that is pulling people together that's right we have a lot of close ties, you know, that America, America is tightly bound together. But all of those things that bind us together are now under strain, all of them, whether it's the political divisions where, look, there's always been partisanship. But what's different now is how widespread the feeling of real anger and enmity towards political opponents is. We've always had different popular culture, but not where it's so fragmented. We've always tended to live around people, you know, we've always, we've had uh, tendencies to want to live around people of like mind, but never to the point where we clustered so um, closely with people who agree with us. And so, at least in the modern era, and 
And so all of these things are pulling and pulling and pulling at these tight bonds, and they're starting to unravel uh, to the point where, for the first time in my adult life, there are people who are looking at the November 2020 election and saying, I can easily foresee the possibility of a constitutional crisis. It's not probable, it's not certain by any means, but it's certainly possible that we could have a constitutional crisis as early as 2020, and that is something that has never happened in my lifetime. One of the things, you touched on this a moment ago when you write about it in Divided We Fall, is the idea of these superclusters where you you only associate with, with essentially people that are like-minded so that you don't know anybody that's voting for Biden or voting for Trump. And so who if, right. if the other side wins, you're so shocked because nobody voted yeah. for them. Yeah, yeah. And this is something that I think is really important for people to understand. One of the con- – there's two – there's two, uh, several consequences of this super clustering, and I identify a few – For example, you know, in the entire island of Manhattan, about 85 percent of people voted for Biden. It was more than 90 percent in the city of Washington, D.C. It was more than 80 percent in San Francisco. And then on the conservative side, disproportionately clustered in the South, you have 81 percent of white evangelicals, for example, voting for uh, Donald Trump. There are entire churches where you could talk to people and ask them, do you know anyone who voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016 and in they maybe they can name one person, maybe not. And what ends up two things ends up end up happening. One is the obvious: you don't understand your opposition. It makes it easier to caricature your opposition. The other thing is you end up becoming more extremist. <laughs> and this is a really fascinating sociological phenomenon. And it basically says when people of like mind gather, they become more extreme. And we've been able to track this. For the last 30 years. And over the last 30 years, the left has become more left and the right has become more right. So that the, we used to think of American politics as this big bell curve where you had a big bunch majority of people in the center left and the center right. Well, that bell curve has been flattening for years and years and years as more people cluster on the extreme edges. And that's another factor that leads to polarization. And, and another overlay to that, which, which you talk about, is the way in which civility and decency and, and things that go along with it have evaporated at the same time, maybe for different reasons, but, but they add fuel to this fire as well. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, this is kind of a natural uh, outgrowth of that increased extremism and that increased clustering. So when you can't understand somebody, when they're further apart from you, And when the stakes of every election seem to grow more existential, then what ends up happening is you stop seeing your political opponents as well-meaning but misguided. Instead, you start to see them as malicious and incomprehensible. And if they're incomprehensible, then what is the explanation for their opposition? Well, it could be that you see them as ignorant or evil. And and this is another thing that we've seen is that we, you can even chart it. You can see the increasing growth of real anger and distaste for your political opponents to the point where some recent researchers have discovered a um, what the a phenomenon they call lethal mass partisanship. And that is where I'm, it's still a minority, thankfully, but a significant percentage of Americans attribute dehumanizing characteristics to their political opponents and even believe the country would be better off if a 
large percentage of our, their political opponents just died. And so you've got enmity, you've got distrust, you've got disgust, and now it's turning into outright hate. How is this different from 1968? It was a period of time where there was huge yeah. division, tremendous amounts of violence, and I think that, that a lot of people don't remember how violent it was during that period. And, and there was a sense, the, the same sense of doom that we're talking about. How yeah. is it different as you see it? Yeah, so my, my contention is that America has changed enough since 1968 that we cannot survive 1968 levels of violence again. And the reason why I say that is America was divided in 68, but there was still kind of an overwhelming majority of Americans who were willing to that the, the violent factions represented small minorities of Americans and those violent factions were scattered around the country. So what we have now is we have um, no such thing as the kind of majority that gave Richard Nixon 49 states in 1972 or gave Ronald Reagan 49 states in 1984. And the, the factions, it's not a large majority versus a small violent faction. You have two very comparably sized factions that have more violent members within them that are clustered in these huge, powerful geographic regions. So whereas in 1968, you had violence scattered around the United States of America, uh, but you also had a, a, a American political middle that could unite strongly enough to give Nixon the 72 majority that he had after a close 68 election. Um, you, you don't have that kind of American middle anymore. What you have is two American tribes clustered in their super clusters that are immense geographic regions. And, and this is historically a formula for real strains on the unity of a body politic. Um, I outline in my book, if you look at, at 1776, if you look at 1861, and you can do this in other eras of real American strain, when you have a large a contiguous geographic region that has, possesses a shared culture that it believes is under existential threat, that creates forces that can divide a country. And that's what worries me now. How does economics play into this? Because, you know, we, we for a while talked about the great divide in America between the haves and the have-nots, between the rich and the poor. Right. You know, you go back to John Edwards' speech about two Americas. How does that economic overlay fit into what we're talking about? Well, you know, there is a thing, there is an interesting economic populism that exists on both left and right. But the problem is there's not really a, a there is not really a prospect for a cross ideological economic populism or economic uh, unifying economic movement because the things that make economic left and economic right so different trump the aspects of the shared view of concerns about you know American opportunity and American equality so um, factors of race of culture. These things are stronger than any sort of shared concern about the American economy. And then the other thing, though, that I think is very interesting about economic realities and American division is America is so potent economically and specific regions are so potent economically that, you know, if, if for example, California and the West Coast split off from the United States of America, 
it would immediately be the fifth or fourth largest economic entity in the world. Um, The same with, say, Texas and the rest of the southeast and parts of the Midwest. It would immediately be the fifth or fourth largest economic entity in the world. These are huge, very economically powerful, prosperous regions that have a lot of sort of their own capacity to thrive. And and so I think that, you know, again, when you when you look at it through that lens, as opposed to the 1960s, where you had a big American middle and scattered violent factions throughout the country versus now where you have big specific American tribes clustered in specific regions, both of them feeling like they're under threat. And that's the key point. One of the realities of the culture war that makes it so vicious right now is both sides think they're losing. You know, and that's that's something when you tell someone in red America, the left thinks it's losing. They think you're losing your mind. What do you mean? The left wins everywhere. And when you tell people on the left that the right feels like the left is on the march, they say, what do you mean? You have the Supreme Court. You have the presidency. You have the Senate. You just had the House. You have most state legislatures. (laughs) What are you talking about? And so both sides feel under existential threat, and that ratchets up the level of concern a great deal. Donald Rumsfeld used to have a saying that sometimes the solution to an intractable problem was to create a larger problem. In many many ways, you could make the case that the pandemic, that COVID should have been that larger problem that brought us together. It didn't. Given that, is it hopeless, essentially? Well, I mean, you know, in some senses, if you're talking about a larger problem that could bring us together, it's hard to see something like that because it's hard to see, for example, a foreign uh, enemy that would be so foolish as to do something like what Japan did on December 7th, 1941. It, it's hard to see something like that where you have such a, a decisive external attack on the United States that would rally us. Well, 9-11. And we all know now that, well, 9-11, but it's a different country now than even during 9-11. I do honestly, I do honestly wonder how quickly we would immediately fall into recriminations over the failure of any administration to protect us from 9-11. Would we see the God bless America United singing on the Capitol steps? I do wonder about that. I think you might see a burst of unity, but I think it would be very, very, a very, very short burst before the recriminations began. And so, but we, you know, as we don't want to plan. It is not a plan for unity to hope for a larger problem. <laughs> we, <laughs> we, we, want, we want to try at unity in the absence of crisis. And, and I think if there is hope for unity, partly some of that hope is going to actually perversely enough to come through greater misery. Um, I don't see a short-term solution to a lot of the division that we have. But I do see it causing increasing levels of political misery in the United States of America. And a lot of people don't like and people don't like to stay miserable. Um, They begin to look for alternatives. And some of those alternatives can be dangerous, such as increasing division and uh, separatism. And some of those alternatives can be virtuous, where people say enough already. Are there voices in this country who have high integrity? a high degree of empathy and compassion for political opponents, and a real desire to lower the national temperature. And if the people seek that, if the people want that, there is sort of a kind of a political law of supply and demand that can come into play. Uh, But right now, the political law of supply and demand is time and time again oriented towards greater outrage and division. 
And there hasn't seemed to emerge, and maybe it's a mistake to think that it will or that it will come that way, but there hasn't been the kind of external leadership that addresses those issues of empathy and, and unity that you're talking about. If, if they were even right. green shoots of it, it would be encouraging, <laughs> but I don't even see those. Well, yes, and part of the reason for that is that while there are a lot of Americans who yearn for it, they are not the most politically active Americans as a rule. So there's one of the things I talk about in my book is that there's a research, really fascinating and compelling research, showing that most of the American political debate is driven by people who are highly engaged political hobbyists on the left and the right. And they're a relatively, they're, they're a minority of Americans. And a majority of Americans, both on the right and on the left, are kind of exhausted and alienated from politics. And then, in fact, there's a term for them. It's called the exhausted majority. Now, the, the problem is that the operative word in that phrase, exhausted majority, is exhausted. <laughs> they, are not, they are alienated from the process rather than, uh, rather than commanding the process, as a majority has the capacity to do. And so the, the strident minority is driving American politics, and the exhausted majority is just kind of along for the ride, grumbling all the way. And, and you know, you, you see this in some of the response to the debate, in that there is a, there was a sort of this wide sort of revulsion at the debate, like, this is one of the worst things we've ever seen. But at the same time, an extreme uh, fundamental stability in the under, underlying race itself, because the exhausted majority is still just kind of chugging along with its tribe, even if it, it is, you know, perhaps alienated the most committed activists of its tribe. The other thing that enters into this equation is that the 74 days of, of interregnum, the 74 days between Election <laughs> Day and Inauguration Day could be among the worst in our history. That is exactly right. I mean, you know, this is, this is where you talk about the possibility of a constitutional crisis. And my friend Steve Hayes, who's our uh, co-founder of The Dispatch, uh, he was asked by a, one of our members, what is your hope for 2020? And he said, you know, he had a one word answer that I thought was very wise. He said, clarity. He wants clarity coming out of Election Day, because in the absence of clarity, you and I both know that things will get contentious incredibly quickly and and that that contentiousness could get very dangerous. If, for example, let's say Trump is winning on Election Day um, live in person vote totals, then the mail-in ballots come in. Republicans have very low confidence in the mail-in ballots. Mail-in ballots have higher mistake rates than in-person ballots, so they're tossed out at higher rates. And Joe Biden starts to come back through mail-in ballots, but enough are tossed out to where he can't win. And, and what is going to happen if millions upon millions upon millions of Americans concentrated in blue states believe that an election was un, was lawlessly stolen from them. What's going to happen there? And some very smart scenario planners have sort of gamed this out and said, it's hard to see something like that resolving itself without a serious wave of national protest and perhaps even violence. And our, our system just can't, our system just can't keep absorbing these strains 
and these blows without perhaps cracking. And if it does crack, historians will say, oh, that was incredibly predictable. <laughs> right. and, and that goes to this idea that, that, that you write about, which is this notion of secession, which it seems on the surface yeah. far-fetched, but maybe not. Yeah, you know, and the reason why I, I was nervous in some ways about writing this book is I wanted to raise the S word, secession, because there are a lot of people who have written on our growing divides. Um, but what what we have to start doing is we can acknowledge those divides, but we have to talk honestly about their implications. And, and here's one of the things that really bothered me about a lot of the literature I was reading about our growing divides was, Look how divided we are. Look how separate we're becoming. And it was sort of like the next step was, and that's why we have to beat them. That's why we have to demolish them. That's why we have to win in this sort of cold civil war, this cultural war. Look how extremists they're getting. Look how divided we're getting. We can't let them win. And, okay, it's one thing to say that if you're, if you have like say a 70 to 30 majority and, and you're, you're fighting against a strong minority, uh, you know, fighting against an extremist minority, which, say, for example, would have been the 6872 uh, scenario. It's another thing entirely when you're talking about 5248 and the actual inability, because the division is 5248, to have in, achieve any kind of final victory over right and left. So, Within what you're looking at is sort of kind of, is sort of like a, a version of trench warfare, political trench warfare, with this firm con- the firm conviction that you have to defeat and dominate the other side. When the reality is, you're going to have to accommodate, you're going to have to learn to live together in this country because there isn't a path forward to drive them out. There isn't a path forward to end them forever, and so. And the very attempt to end them forever, to drive them out, to dominate, is going to just make everything that much worse. Why, given our history and given the political pluralism that has been so much a part of our history for for a long time, why is that such a hard concept for people to understand? I mean, you've been on the receiving end of the opposite point of view. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I've, the more I look at this, the more I realize there is a point at which enmity and disgust crosses a threshold where you no longer see a value in liberty, and specifically the liberty of your opponents. So um, it, and ultimately, if we cannot resolve to live together in, a, in pluralism, unless we can do something about that enmity and that disgust. And I'm not saying that love is going to break out. It's not a kumbaya plan. (laughs) But can't a basic modicum of tolerance break out? And one of the things that I talked about in the book is how George Washington, almost 50 times in his correspondence, um, including crucially in a letter to a Hebrew congregation in Rhode Island, directed at one of the world's most persecuted religious minorities, referred to a verse from the book of Micah, Micah 4.4, 4, which says that uh, every man shall sit under his own vine and his own fig tree, and no one shall make him afraid. And if that's familiar to you, it might be because you know the book of Micah or because you know the musical Hamilton, right. which, which repeats that same verse. And 
there's there is a moral there is a a moral concept captured there that says you can have a place in this land you can have a home in this land and unless we can look at our even our most bitter political opponents and assure them you can have a home in this land and mean it and mean it then we're in trouble but because but what i'm seeing is people looking at their bitter political opponents and saying you you're going to have to conform to my vision of what this country is, and that's going to be the terms under which you stay. Is there finally any historical examples that we can look to? We talked a little bit about 1968 before. Are there other historical examples, either American or other in the world, that might help us better look at that crystal ball? Yeah, you know, there are... So they, I've mentioned the American crystal ball examples of secession, uh, 1776, where for good reasons, the colonists seceded from the British Empire. 1861, where for evil reasons, the Confederacy seceded from the Union. We've had other near, we've had other, other moments in American history where the separatist strains were very great on this Union. People forget that the War of 1812, for example, is an extraordinarily contentious conflict. People forget about the incredible strains placed on the country in the election of 1876, which is shortly after. But we're also beginning to see around the world a bit of a movement towards more separatism. Although it didn't end up being super close, the United Kingdom was set to let Scotland leave if the Scottish people voted to leave. And there may be future referenda there in the aftermath of Brexit. You see a strong Catalonian independence movement, for example, in Spain. And Brexit itself is was a strong move away from a kind of multinational union that was sort of becoming increasingly uh, stifling and increasingly strong. And so, you know, one of the things that you that you see, and I think this is going to be an interesting long term historical outgrowth of if the continue, if great power conflict continues to be kept at bay, and the need for sort of strong national unions and multinational unions is seen as less compelling. Um, will you begin to see more of the natural divisions and separatism and, and, and feelings of separateness of a lot of uh, American or, or a lot of countries around the world? Will, will we continue to see that? Um, remains to be seen. But, you know, our neighbors in the North, a lot of Americans forget that there were some uh, Quebec a uh, re- referenda about Qu- Quebec that failed, sometimes kind of narrowly. Um, and so these kinds of things pop up with regularity in the course of not just American history, but also world history as well. David French, his book is Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. David, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you.